T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. Over the past few decades, the opioid epidemic is believed to have claimed the lives of half a million Americans. It's a crisis that's been fueled by a seemingly limitless supply of pain pills, manufactured, distributed, and sold by legitimate businesses, some of them among the largest in the country. And as today's guests have documented, even after those companies got multiple warnings that their product was falling into the wrong hands, that supply kept coming. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, we're going to be speaking with two Washington Post investigative reporters about the great lengths the opioid industry went to to make sure that business as usual could continue, even as overdose deaths began to skyrocket. Those business practices so brazen that our guests today compare the industry to a drug cartel. Those reporters are Sari Horowitz and Scott Hyam, and their new book is American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. They join us now to lay out what they found. Sari Horowitz and Scott Hyam, welcome to the program. Thanks Thank for you, having Keith. So this conversation is quite well-timed because just this past week we saw a major ruling that could see a $600 million payout to uh, two counties that have been ravaged by the opioid crisis. And this uh, ruling is particularly telling, I would say, because of who the defendants are. Uh, That would be CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart, uh, some of the largest pharmacy chains in the country, and uh, companies that I think many of us really wouldn't associate with the opioid crisis. And That uh, really speaks to the heart of what your book has to say. That is uh, just how many corporations and how many people really are implicated in making this crisis happen, Uh, Sari. Yes, uh, very timely that we're having this conversation now because, as you said, a federal judge ordered three of the country's largest pharmacy chains to pay $650 million to two Ohio uh, counties that they were found to have flooded with prescription painkillers. And this is really a landmark judgment that affects CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. Um, And they're having to bear some of the costs of the opioid epidemic 
has caused in what Lake and Trumbull counties outside of Cleveland. And our book, American Cartel, really explains this. Um, and what it really gets to is that most people think of the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma when they think about the opioid epidemic. They don't think of companies like Walmart or Walgreens. But what Scott and I found in uh, more than a two-year investigation is that while Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers may have ignited this crisis, a lot of these other companies that Americans know pretty well, like Walgreens, Walmart, CVS, Johnson & Johnson, really fueled the deadliest drug epidemic in American history. And there are some companies that are part of this American cartel, according to the DEA, that people have never heard of, uh, may never heard of, like Mallinckrodt, a company based in St. Louis that actually manufactured 30 times the number of pain pills that the Sacklers, uh, Purdue Pharma made. And together, these companies um, form what the Drug Enforcement Administration uh, once called an American cartel. Yeah, yeah. So it really is this sprawling network of companies and interests that came together to really protect this supply, keep it flowing year after year, even as the alarm bells were ringing. But for anybody who has not been following the opioid crisis closely, let's make sure that we set the table a little bit and uh, keep everybody on the same page. Uh, Scott Hyam, uh, remind us, how did the opioid crisis begin? Uh, obviously, uh, we mentioned Purdue Pharma. There was uh, a role to be played there. Uh, what, what, what tipped this off? And then how did this grow in scope? Uh, so dramatically? Well, it, it, you can trace it back, Keith, to 1996 when a, a drug uh, called OxyContin went on the market. And uh, that was the brainchild of the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. And um, basically what OxyContin is, is oxycodone uh, that is time-released. Um, and this was supposed to be like a miracle drug. And because it was time-released, you couldn't get addicted to it. And they convinced the entire medical community and doctors that it was safe to prescribe this drug when now internal documents show that that's not true, that it was a highly addictive drug, that a lot of people got uh, hooked on, on this drug, that you could, you could crush it um, and defeat the time-released uh, function on, on these tablets. And you could snort it, you could shoot it, and you can get uh, a huge dose of oxycodone very quickly. And it's like the equivalent of a hit of heroin. And so for about 10 years, OxyContin was on, on, on the market, ruled the market until about 2006 um, when Purdue Pharma was fined uh, 600, more than $600 million for misbranding its drug. They had to reformulate it. And at that point, a lot of other companies saw that there was a huge market and a lot of money to be made, and they jumped in with both feet. Uh, Sari mentioned uh, Mallinckrodt, uh, their, their pill, it was a little blue 30 milligram tablet that had an M on one side and a 30 on the other. And that pill became the most popular pain pill uh, on the streets. And a bunch of other companies um, you know, joined the fray. And so like Sarah said, many of them, you are household names, but many of them, most Americans have never heard of. There's you know, activists, which is a big manufacturer of par pharmaceuticals. And so what our book does is it, it really begins in that time frame. I mean, it, Purdue set the table for this American cartel, and our book begins in 2006 when a when a guy named Joe Ranazzisi uh, came 
to the DEA headquarters. He was a pharmacist. He was a, a lawyer and a street drug agent for the DEA. And he took over the division that was responsible for policing the pharmaceutical industry. And, and he was appalled by what he saw and he started going after these companies. And so he's one of our, our main characters. And when you follow what he tried to do and he went up against uh, these very, very powerful interest industry, they basically crushed him. Um, and and uh, you know what, what happens to him is, a, is an amazing story. It's almost like you, you can't believe that it's true. Yeah, well, you you feel that way an awful lot reading this book. It's uh, it's has a thriller aspect to it, and almost kind of a horror aspect in, in in just the sense that you turn another page and you're like, well, I didn't think that I lived in that kind of society. But again and again, we had these warnings, and they weren't heeded or they were covered up. And I think that that's one of the things that the book uh, really spells out very well is how much we knew, at least how much some people knew. Early on, you talk about the DEA, we did have mountains of information about where these pills were going, just so many more pills to these little towns that couldn't possibly have used them in a legitimate way, and questions were raised early on, Sari Horowitz, and yet didn't lead to the sort of outcome that we might expect. No, I mean, when you talk about numbers, Keith, these, uh, these companies, manufacturers, distributors... Um, sent a shocking 100 billion highly addictive and dangerous pain pills across the country. Um, In fact, the DEA agents called these executives and these companies drug dealers in business suits. Um, You know, just to pick up on on what Scott was saying about Joe Renazizi. So the way that that narcotics are manufactured and distributed in this country, it's a closed system. It's unlike other drugs. In 1970, Congress realized that these were such addictive drugs. They created this system that was very controlled and regulated so that drugs would not leak out or be diverted to the black market. And Joe Renazizi, who Scott talked about, was in charge of the diversion unit in the DEA. And he saw that the companies, especially the distributors, the middlemen, so there's manufacturers, they make the drugs, the distributors distribute, and then there's the pharmacies. The distributors were... We're, we're, we're skirting the law or breaking the law because when pharmacies order a, a suspiciously large amount of drugs or something that does that's out of the routine, the distributors are supposed to stop, find out why the pharmacies are ordering so much, it's a red flag, stop shipping them and tell the Drug Enforcement Administration. And they didn't do that. And so Joe Renazizi warned them. First, he wrote them letters, he met with them, they ignored him. They ignored the drug enforcement. They, they ignored the government, basically. And so finally, Joe and his team started shutting down warehouses and forcing these companies to pay millions of dollars in fines. For example, Walgreens was forced to pay $80 million. And the companies all said, okay, we're going we're gonna to be better. We're going to try to control this better. But shockingly, they went and did it again. And again, the Drug Enforcement Administration and Joe Renazizi went after them and fined them. And Finally, the drug industry decided to fight back. They, they fought first in the courtrooms, in the courthouse, and then when they lost there, they turned to Congress. And they were armed with high paid lobbyists and Washington lawyers, and of course, campaign contributions. And they were actually, this is amazing, Keith, but they were actually at the height of the opioid epidemic, able to get a law passed that kneecapped the Drug Enforcement Administration 
weakened the ability of the DEA to come after them to stop the carnage. And then as Scott said, they personally, they went after Joe personally, crushed him and his team, forced him out of government basically. Um, and this is all about money. They are ignoring the epidemic because they're making billions of dollars. All right. And we're going to pick up on some of those ideas in just a second. Uh, Real quick for anybody who's just joining us. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're looking at the complex legal dealings and high power politics that helped keep the supply of pain pills flowing even as the opioid crisis was gathering force. Hearing about it from Sari Horowitz and Scott Hyam both Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists for The Washington Post. And their new book is American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. So just to maybe complete the picture for uh, our listeners out there, Scott Hyam, where were these pills ending up? Uh, We were talking about the fact that many more pills were landing in these cities than could really be absorbed. So what was actually happening to these pills? Well, you know, all roads led to Florida at the very beginning of of of, of this epidemic. Um, there was a lot of pill mills. Florida is kind of a wild west uh, state when it comes to regulation, and so there were a lot of corrupt doctors, and there were a lot of uh, storefront operations where you could just walk in and say you had some back pain, and you would pay a doctor two hundred fifty bucks of four hundred dollars, and you get a prescription for oxycodone. And then you walk down the street to another doctor. And so people started collecting all these scripts and then they would they would go back home uh, and, and get them filled. Or they would stop at uh, a Walgreens or a CVS on, on the way home uh, to you know, Ohio or West Virginia, which where is the kind of the, the original ground zero of the opioid epidemic. There were there were a pair of CVS stores, and this is this is in our book. Um, uh, it, it's kind of an amazing scene where one of Joe Renazzisi's top investigators, a, a woman named Ruth Carter, he sends her down to Florida because there's so many pills that are that are being dispensed down there, and so many scripts they're being written, and they're all they're just flooding the country. So she goes to she sees in the in the internal data that there are these two Walgreens, I mean uh, two CVS stores in Sanford, Florida, which is right outside of uh, Orlando, that are get off the charts amounts of of, of, of oxycodone. And there are four pharmacies all told they were getting 11 million doses of drugs within a few months. And so she goes down there and she walks into the parking lot and it's just filled with, you know, with drug users and drug dealers and cars with out-of-state license plates. And people are selling drugs and doing drugs in the parking lot. And it's like before opening. And so there's a line of customers waiting for the pharmacy to open. And she goes into the store and she she goes to the head pharmacist and she says, you know, what's going on here? You know, don't you realize what's happening here? This is like an open air drug market. And, and the woman says, well, I know I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. But, you know, at two o'clock, we, we cut off all of our oxycodone sales. And, and Ruth Carter, the DEA agent, says, well, why do you do that? And the pharmacist says, well, because we want to save our, our pain medication for our real pain patients. And so there, there were these kinds of disclosures that were jaw dropping, and and the DEA was like, you know, you guys know exactly what's happening, and yet you're not, not doing anything to stop this. And the numbers are just off the charts, as as you guys know. I was just out in California, San Diego, San Francisco, L.A., 
places that were largely untouched by the opioid epidemic 10 years ago are now reeling with overdose deaths, with, uh, with visits to emergency rooms. It, it's just off the charts. Um, and so we, you know, we, we, the, the industry knew what was going on. And, and, and as you said, Keith, a lot of these documents have come out because of uh, legal action that the Washington Post took to unseal literally millions of internal corporate documents along with a lot of data. And so now we can see exactly what the companies knew, when they knew it, what they did and what they didn't do. Yeah. And, and just picking up on, on something Scott, Scott was talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just to pick up on what Scott just was talking about regarding Walgreens. And again, the question is, how much do the companies know? When did they know it? Back in 2011, in a small town in Florida, Oviedo, Florida, there were two Walgreens pharmacies. And these Walgreens pharmacies had virtually become open air drug markets in their parking lots. People were coming in to, to these stores, to these pharmacies, and they had multiple prescriptions, di different doctors, different states. And instead of the pharmacists seeing this as a red flag and not filling them, they filled all of them. And um, then, the, then the customers would go out into the parking lot, crush the pills, inject them, sell them. It was like a, you know, a black market right there next to the store. And then they'd get on the road and they were high and it was dangerous and there was a lot of crimes uh, around this. And so the police chief in this town wrote a letter to the CEO of Walgreens and to the, the, the second ranking executive and the third. And we've seen, we've seen the letter. Um, it's, it's now part of litigation. But he said, look, I've got this huge problem here. Your two stores um, are, are, are just dispensing oxycodone and oxycontin and not stopping any of this. And there are all these red flags. There are all these drug users in the parking lot. And he described it. And he literally got no answer from anybody at Walgreens. He said, please help me shut with these pharmacists, no answer. And so in terms of what they knew back as far as 2011, they clearly knew what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a, a devilish problem to get a handle on because on the one hand we do and this is something that the companies were arguing you you have doctors writing prescriptions for medication that is a legitimate medication for people in pain and we have the distributors sending it to uh, pharmacies that you know have filed these prescriptions and then we have manufacturers uh, that are you know, giving it to these distributors. So all down the line, you can point to legitimate purpose and legitimate sign-offs. And uh, if, if you just look at the, you know, thousand-foot view, it, it, it could be difficult until you really look into the details to uh, see where the problem is. And, and it really, uh, but as you've been saying, plenty of people did look into the details and did find that. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, how much did this contribute, in your view, to the opioid crisis itself, you know, just the fact that all of these pills were available, Scott Hyam, uh, could we have had an opioid crisis of this degree without such a supply? Yeah, you know, Keith, that, that's a great question. This did not have to happen. If you talk to uh, people in, in the drug enforcement world, you know, they said, look, we, we had these guardrails set up. We, we had systems and, and, and laws and rules and regulations in place to make sure that this would never happen. And this industry and its lobbyists and its lawyers and its allies on Capitol Hill tore down those guardrails. 
and 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 these pills just started spilling onto the street and there was nothing that the DEA could do about it there was nothing that the local law enforcement could do about it there was nothing that the hospitals could do about it people were just completely inundated by these pills and so you know you 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 look back on this and you say like you know ha, ha, you know could this have been prevented you know yes it could have been prevented and, you know, as Joe Renazzisi would tell you, you know, these companies did not want to obey the law. So they just went ahead and changed the law. And, you know, we have we have, you know, all these incredible scenes that you just can't believe that this stuff happened. But, you know, they, the, 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 the DEA has highly trained men and women uh, who uh, police this industry and the industry knows this. So instead of having a, a revolving door that everybody knows about in Washington, there's now just like a one-way street. And they were just taking people, plucking them straight from the DEA, putting them onto their payrolls, tripling, quadrupling their salaries, sometimes even more, going to the law firms that represent these companies. And one of the DEA's top lawyers was, was the man who actually helped the drug industry write the law that undermine the DEA at the height of, of, of the opioid epidemic. It, it's just, it's, it's stunning. And that Congress would have approved this, that, that President Obama would have signed this into law. It was like, either they weren't paying attention, a lot of them weren't, members of Congress don't pay attention to a lot of the laws that they pass. And then there were a number of, of legislators who knew exactly what they were doing. Um, and some of them are still in Congress today, including Senator Marsha Blackburn. She was a Congresswoman at the time from the state of Tennessee, uh, heavily hit uh, by the opioid epidemic. And she was one of the chief sponsors of this legislation. And she got a lot of money from the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Speaking once again to Sari Horowitz and Scott Hyam about their new book, American Cartel Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. And so, so far, we've really been speaking about the first half of your book, which is the... I, I suppose we could say almost uh, complete defeat at some points that the DEA faced in trying to rein in these companies, rein in this supply of pills. But then there's the second half of your book where we talk about the legal civil cases, the civil cases that um, were put forward to get some recompense for these communities from these distributors, manufacturers, and pharmacies. And here there has been some more success over the past several years. So, uh, Sari Horowitz, uh, tell us a little bit about what we've been seeing on that front. Yes, uh, more than 4,000 cities, towns, counties, and Indian nations brought lawsuits against more than two dozen drug companies. And there was a historic settlement a few months ago, the big three drug distributors, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, along with drug maker Johnson & Johnson, agreed to pay these 4,000 plaintiffs, cities and towns, Native American nations, $26 billion over the next 18 years for drug treatment, education, and prevention measures. So that's something that's gonna be money coming into communities. Uh, for badly needed uh, drug treatment. The the issue though, is the families of opioid victims are demanding to know why no criminal charges have been filed against any company executives. You know, Keith, right now there are about 40,000 Americans behind bars on marijuana charges, but not one executive of a Fortune 500 company that peddled opioids has been criminally charged. No company executive has apologized, 
or accept a responsibility for their role in this epidemic that's taken more than 600,000 lives, more than the military lost during World War II. And it's, it's not just history. You know, Scott and I uh, can talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, the opioid epidemic right now is worse than ever, even with the Sacklers on the sidelines really now, they're in bankruptcy and Mallinckrodt's in bankruptcy. That's, that's another company Scott talked about, but it's, it's worse than ever, worse than a year ago, worse than five years ago. The Centers for Disease Control says that for adults ages 18 to 45, fentanyl poisoning, synthetic opioid fentanyl is the leading cause of death, surpassing COVID, suicide, car accidents. You know, we're in the midst right now of the deadliest drug epidemic in United States history. So getting back to your question, yes, there have been uh, there are 4,000 lawsuits brought together. There have been settlements, $26 billion in settlements and, and more. I mean, if you add up all the settlements now, it's close to, to 40 billion, but no executive uh, punished, no executive in jail, and the fentanyl crisis is completely out of control. All right. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to have to give the closing word to Scott Hyam. And I think where I'd like to close this, uh, if you could just reflect on where we're at as a country. You know, a lot of what you're revealing is showing an ugly side of American politics, American lobbying, American business dealings. This is really not how we want our country to function. We like to think that when some kind of malfeasance occurs, the wrongdoers are brought to justice. But in this case, uh, as you suggest, it seems like the levers of power were really turned to an incredible degree to make sure that that didn't happen. So where are we at now? Are we in a better place in terms of dealing with this current unfolding opioid crisis that we're still in uh, and holding people accountable? You know, sadly, Keith, the answer is no. And, uh, and you know, and a lot of the men and women in the DEA who are, um, you know, central to our book will tell you that they, they have, you know, they they look back on uh, on the corporate behavior, not just in in, in in the opioid industry, but in in other industries. I mean, you look at look at what happened on Wall Street during the, the, the economic meltdown in 2008 and, and, the, and the, 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 the mortgage crisis. I think one person went to, went to prison for that. And so I think, you know, corporate uh, boardrooms, uh, they, they look at, they look at uh, the bottom line. They see, um, you know, what, 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 their, what their exposure is going to be. And 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 whether or not there's going to be uh, consequences for their actions, and there hasn't really been consequences for their actions. Um, you know, th- yes, they they paid out a lot of money, but you know, it's like the cost of doing business, uh, according to the DEA. Let's look at that one settlement that Sari mentioned. Uh, so, the three largest drug distributors in America, McKesson, Marisource Bergen, and Cardinal Health, along with Johnson and Johnson. Uh, you know, they they agreed to settle all these lawsuits against them for twenty six billion dollars. The day that that uh, settlement was announced, their share prices rose by three percent on an average. And so they, they just kind of build this into their into their into their bottom lines. And, you know, in, in that money, the 30 to 40 billion dollars is going to help a lot of these communities. It's going to go to drug rehab. Uh, it's going to go helping you know, addicted babies. It's going to help these hospitals and paramedics, but it, it, is the behavior 
of corporate America going to change? And, and, that, and that's a huge question. And, and we asked that to, to, you know, to Joe Renazizi, and he said, you know, I, I don't think it's going to change because of for, for two, two main reasons, power and influence. And as long as they have the power and influence and the money uh, uh, to, to throw around Capitol Hill, and um, it, that very little is going to change. Yeah, well, it is a harrowing story and uh, a whole lot of harrowing revelations. Uh, but we do thank you for uncovering it and bringing it to light and sharing it with us today. We have been speaking one last time with Washington Post investigative reporters Siri Horowitz and Scott Hyam about their new book, American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. Thanks to you both. Thanks for having us, Keith. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 